Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Eric. How are you? I'm fine. You know, another another boring, slow news week in Washington. I mean, and then Friday morning, uh, having this Michael Flynn news drop, I, I got in touch with Bob Mueller, the special prosecutor, and explained to him, I don't think he's aware, that we closed the print magazine late Thursday night. It's very in- inconsiderate of him to break big news Friday morning. Our print subscribers don't get the benefit of our analysis. Of course, they're reading it online as we speak. And Weeklystandard.com. The- yes, weeklystandard.com. And, and, and Steve Hayes, Jonathan Last, Rachel Aramore, that team have done a great job. And obviously, the same writers write for it. And it's as good as, honestly, it is as high quality as the print magazine. Still, I'm an old-fashioned print guy. I sort of feel like uh, Mueller is too, you know, and he's... Uh, he should be more considerate in his timing of these uh, big news-making moments. So I've been in touch with him. We'll see what he does. I expect the next one to be much more considerately timed Wednesday night, Thursday morning for our print magazine. But it is very big news today. And Michael Flynn is perhaps feeling that Bob Mueller isn't particularly considerate at the moment either. Well, he gave him a pretty good deal from one point of view, you know, one count really of lying to the FBI, I guess. And, uh, and lying about kind of something that is no big deal at a, in a way i in mean a way. we don't know obviously exactly you know whether it could or couldn't be but but this is one point i was chatting with a prosecutor over while doing tv this morning a former prosecutor who was himself going to be on tv and I, and he confirmed my suspicion about this which is people are obsessing too much about what the count specifies it's really irrelevant i mean when you do a plea bargain you get something that's kind of pretty easy to prove, probably, because the judge wants to make sure that it's an authentic, you know, it's a, the charge is fair. Uh, you get something that has the right kind of sentence that you are bargaining for. You're really bargaining about the sentence, not about the plea, obviously. Um, but you can, but it, that's not necessarily why Mueller's interested in Flynn. That is, a lot of the analysis so far has been, well, so let's look at that conversation in December with Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. Did Trump authorize it? Did, did Kushner, would that be wrong or not? Would that be illegal or not? It could well be that that happened to be something uh, Flynn lied about. Uh, it apparently was. Uh, it could be something that's problematic in all kinds of legal and other ways for, for Trump himself or for Kushner or just for Flynn. That's uh, inappropriate, maybe illegal. But it could also be that the big things that Flynn is talking to Mueller about uh, have to do with the campaign or they have to do with the firing of Comey or a million other things. In other words, the plea deal is the most important thing about the plea deal is not Flynn; it's Mueller. Right. You have to ask yourself why did Mueller feel have why did he offer him this deal? He could have just done what he did with Manafort and indicted him for fifteen different things, probably, and gone to trial. And they're good prosecutors, and if they have him dead to rights, they have him dead to rights. The reason he was apparently reasonably eager to cut the deal, it looks like, and certainly cut a cut it pretty fast and pretty and gave him a pretty good deal, apparently, uh, by most accounts. Uh, kind of what you might expect in these circumstances, is that Flynn must have explained, I have information that will interest you on X, Y, or Z. And Mueller's not interested in information that's going to get seven other junior staffers or seven junior staffers in trouble. Mueller's interested in information that's going to get get him closer to what he his charges to investigate, which is really when you get down to it, right. uh, Trump. And so I, I think One, that the degree to which this gets us much closer to Mueller going after Trump in a big way is is striking. Yeah, and in fact, I think that the the nothing burger quality of the actual charges that were pleaded guilty to reflects that you don't want to put on the record the material, the best material you have. So you use something that's kind of peripheral, part of the case, but isn't going to give away 
the stuff that Mueller's really going after and leaves people who are being interviewed in the dark about what is already on the record from Flynn. I think that's a very good point. And I, I, now that you say it, I wish I had made that point earlier on TV, but I will steal it and make it later on TV. <laughs> Feel and free it, to use it. Later. And it will be on this podcast, <laughs> so it'll be available to everyone. No, absolutely right. I mean, you would get someone to flip a member of a criminal gang. You might get them to flip on tax evasion or on you know, some minor burglary he was part of. If you're going after his participation in, let's say, a murder, and you don't want to tip off the other people who were involved in the gang murder, that you actually know quite a lot about that when you call them in. So I very much agree with that. I, I think it's, it's, it's almost a positive inclination on the part of prosecutors, positive uh, incentive on the part of prosecutors to mask a little bit what they know or what, what the most sensitive areas really of inquiry really are. So with that masking going on, what's it like being a White House staffer right now? You know, I don't know. I'm, I was lucky. The white, one White House I was in was pretty free of, of this kind of uh, investigation, the George H.W. Bush White House. I had friends who were in both got caught up in Iran-Contra, you know, tangentially, and, and friends who were caught up, obviously, as Scooter Libby's a friend, in the 2003-2005 uh, Bush White House uh, investigation. Um, and I, some of the people I know, I think, were very unfairly caught up in it. But it is, it is, un, it is disconcerting, and it can be time-consuming, and people get on edge. Uh, partly because, I mean, if you, if, if the things that are being looked into are things that you might have very tangentially even been involved in, and suddenly you're trying to remember, what did I say? I mean, I, I don't want to lie, so I have to be careful. I go back through my records. I want to be make sure I tell the truth when I'm. Uh, quizzed by the FBI. But of course, more broadly, there's also a sense of where is this going and who was around, what happened. And I think especially with Flynn, it would be you know, people who were in that White House. If you weren't there, that while Flynn was there, you probably think, well, I don't, I'm not really, you know, Flynn can't testify about anything about me because I came to the White House three months ago, right? But if you were in the campaign or if you were in the in transition or if you were in the White House the first month, you've got to be thinking, how am I getting dragged into this? Even if you didn't do anything wrong, but you could have been in a meeting where you'll be asked to confirm, you know, something that has been reportedly said that turns out to have some significance you don't even know about, and um, which is fine. And presumably you'll tell the truth, and then you'll you won't be you just be a witness. But uh, it is very um, it is very uh, uh, it's disconcerting, and obviously the person for whom it's most disconcerting is uh, President Donald J. Trump. Our colleague, Michael Warren, whose excellent White House watch is available at weeklystandard.com every day, um, he is suggesting that the infamous Twitter storm this week from the president was driven perhaps in part by the knowledge that something was coming from Flynn. And that could be one of two ways, either that it just had Donald Trump on edge and he reacted by tweeting like madman, or there's an effort in some way or other to try to distract from the coming news by creating a fog of uh, Twitter fire. I think the first is more likely just because if the news is this big, it doesn't really matter what Trump tweeted the day before. You know, you can distract some things, but but uh, not not this. But I yes, he, he does seem to have been on edge for the last week in general on Twitter and, and in his comments with the ceremony for the Navajo Code Talkers in, 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 the, in the Oval Office. And... Um, and some of that might be that he, I mean, he did know a week ago, I mean, we know, I think, that he know, knew a week ago 
that Flynn's attorneys had told his attorneys, among others, that they were no longer could no longer be part of a formal, or I think it was informal, defense cooperation agreement where they were sharing information and that sharing was privileged because they were now in conversation with the prosecutors. That's a pretty big tip-off that he's at least considering, and it turned out he was considering, and moving ahead in, in, in turning state's evidence, so to speak, or in cutting a deal with the prosecutor. So that Trump would have known that, and his lawyers would have explained the significance of that to him, and Trump would have understood that. He's been in a lot of lawsuits in his day. And uh, that could well be that one reason he was on edge. And I guess I'd reframe Mike's second alternative, therefore, a little bit, maybe less of fog of distraction, but certainly revving up his base. I mean, let's pick a fight with the NFL again, just to remind my supporters why they like me. Let's make fun of Elizabeth Warren to remind my supporters what the alternative to me is, and that I'm the guy who has the nerve to mention Pocahontas or whatever's going through Trump's mind in that respect. Um, Let's remind people about terror from Muslims and and I'm the guy with the Muslim ban. So yes, in that respect, I think it's not just a peak or anger, but it has a kind of uh, intention to it. I, I think the intention is probably a little less uh, fog of confusion and a little more, you know, revving up my supporters. But either way, it, it uh, yeah, whatever the intention, uh, it, may, it may well be related. And these tweets have consequences, in particular, the videos that he retweeted um, about Muslim su- supposed violence. Um, I mean, goodness knows there's enough real incidents of Islamist terrorism uh, that one could uh, tweet if need be, but he managed to find some right-wing wacko version from Britain that has seriously damaged U.S.-British relations. Yeah, he tweeted this right-wing, you know, beyond the pale kind of member of British party, British beyond the pale party, you might say. Um, uh, One of the, at least one of the videos that she had tweeted that Trump retweeted is fake, actually, or is fake is is incorrectly described as uh, violence from a Muslim against a, a, a Dutch young man on crutches. But it was just one, not just, but it was a Dutch, it's a non-immigrant, non-Muslim Dutch, you know, apparently committing violence against another Dutch uh, person for whatever reason. The perpetrator, they, they knew who he was. He was arrested. This was from months ago, incidentally. <clears throat> so it's very irresponsible, just in general, to retweet something like that without checking on it, especially if you're president of the United States. And then leaving even aside, so it's false, leaving even, or falsely characterized, and then as you say, leaving aside whether it's even responsible to do it in the first place if it were true, because, I mean, what's the, what do you, what's the point of it? I guess you're making some point about the threat of Islamist violence, but meanwhile, in this case, you're offending the Prime Minister of Great Britain by retweeting someone that they consider outside the pale and giving that person a kind of legitimacy and certainly a kind of fame. Um, and is it really worth it to, to do what? To stir up people? I mean, he's got his policies. He's implemented some of them, some of the others he's fighting for. So go fight for his policies and implement them, but don't you know stir up passions that are unhealthy in any in, in general. But in this particular case, yeah, really it caused a bit of a crisis with uh, the British government. I mean, it's amazing. These allied governments really, they want to work with us. You know, they, at the end of the day, it's important that at the practical level of intelligence sharing and other things, we all work together, we and the Brits and others. And my impression, I was over in Britain about th- what, three, four weeks ago, talked with someone pretty senior there who said, yeah, on the operational level, things are working okay. I mean, we're going to continue to share information about so-and-so who may be getting on a plane and Heathrow to come here. You know, uh, that that, that operational level is pretty deeply entrenched in the Anglo-American relationship. 
But this person said at the kind of policy level, it's pretty bad. It's not that they, it's not even that they really, you know, there's not hatred or dislike even. It's just that they're confused. The American counterparts are kind of confused. Some of these jobs aren't filled anyway. And it's just sort of drift, you might say. So, And what uh, if the public opinion part of the equation helps lead to a prime minister, Jeremy Corbyn? I totally agree. That's a really good point. You know, one of the things that's most underestimated about the possible bad effects of Trump abroad is who, what is he doing to who is he helping in among other publics, in other public opinion, other publics, public opinions, whatever the word is there? And I agree. I mean, it's in the case of Britain, they get offended. He seems to be denigrating British law enforcement or something, you know, or, or tweeting a crazy right-wing party with a conservative government in power that was sort of boasting that we can figure out how to get along with Trump and with keep the U.S. as a strong ally. And Corbyn just says, look, I mean, so Theresa May has no clout with Trump. Why else would he, Trump tweet this? You might as well put me in there. I'll just, uh, I'll be ant- antagonistic to Trump, but I'll be honest about it. And Britain can, you know, feel proud. I think the same thing could happen in Mexico where, you know, Trump insults uh, Mexico, talks about NAFTA being a terrible deal and blowing it up. He's been refrained from doing that so far. But I do have the impression uh, that it's helped the kind of Trump version of Trumpy nationalism in Mexico, which isn't a good thing. So these things have consequences, as you suggest, not just on the details of the government, uh, you know, to, to government relations, but in, uh, on the publics in these different countries. Next time you talk to Bob Mueller, tell him that uh, this is all his fault for riling up the president and uh, making the Twitter storm happen in the first place. I'll do that, and I'll, again, just to repeat, tell him to, to rile up the president earlier in the week. So the prince, the, but next week's print edition will have thoughtful analysis of this, and there's a lot of good stuff online on this. I've got to say, our, our, I think our, Mike Warren and many of our other uh, correspondents and analysts have written well about this this issue and others. The main thing I would say, just in conclusion, I guess, is though, having, again, been close to some of these investigations, we don't know. I mean, Robert Mueller, whatever, people could like him, dislike him, they could wish that he weren't investigating Trump. He's got very experienced and sophisticated FBI agents and lawyers working for him. They're putting together whatever they're putting together. They're learning a heck of a lot. They're not telling us about it. This isn't one of these cases where you get some leaks and you sort of know what's going on and it's like very loose, loosey-goosey sort of thing. Yeah, this has been a tight ship. It's a tight ship. For all we know, it'll end up not producing anything that uh, leads to a referral against Trump to Congress or anything that goes beyond uh, perhaps... uh, a few, several other indictments of AIDS. Uh, maybe what Flynn ends up delivering isn't enough to really clinch any kind of case against Trump at all. Um, maybe one or two other peers of, of Flynn, like Jared Kushner, you know, get in trouble. Uh, or maybe not. I mean, maybe it's much more serious. I, I just think we, we have no, no idea. And to get back to what we were saying earlier, we have no idea where the real vulnerabilities are. I mean, what, what is the thing that, Flint, that Mueller thinks Flynn is t- going to be able to elaborate and tell him uh, that's going to, you know, lead him uh, to whatever misdeeds Mueller thinks he's got a glimpse of, and whether they're in the campaign or whether they're in the White House or in the transition, we don't know. And the final point, I'd say, we don't know, nor do we know what, sometimes I think, what what strings Mueller will now be able to pull because of information Flynn has given him that may or may not be fruitful. Obviously, most, I gather, in most of these cases, most of what you investigate, like in real life, like in you know, being a journalist or anything, is most of it just dead, you know, dead ends. But we don't know whether you know Flynn is going to tell, uh, had, you know, Mueller about a meeting with Trump in I'm making this up in July of 2016 with Joe Blow, someone we've not even heard of, 
And it turns out that that was a meeting where they discussed something inappropriate or improper. And Joe Blow then comes in and tells Mueller, right? I mean, people are being a little too narrow-minded, I would say, in terms of the kind of information Mueller may be able to get from Flynn. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from The Great Courses Plus. Many of us have been concerned recently about threats to cybersecurity. It's a subject we all want to understand better. I've been watching a course from The Great Courses Plus that does a great job of exploring this, thinking about cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. In this course, you'll learn from cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig as he examines big data, digital espionage, and the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cybercrime. You'll get practical tips on how to reduce your own risk of danger online in your professional and personal life. You'll find out how to choose the most effective passwords, how to set up the most effective personal computer security systems, how to encrypt and erase personal data and documents, and much more. There's so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you, from award-winning professors, thousands of lectures on topics like world history, science, even photography or chess. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can learn entirely on your own schedule. Watch video or stream audio to enjoy the lectures wherever you are. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And right now, they're offering Weekly Standard listeners a free month of unlimited access to all of their courses. But you need to sign up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for this week's Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.